Volume two, chapter fourteen of A Charming Fellow. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. A Charming Fellow by Francis Eleanor Trollope. Volume two, chapter fourteen. Among the first persons to hear of David Powell's return to Whitford and his intention of preaching there was Miss Bodkin. As the spectators see more of the play than the actors, so many from her couch or her lounging chair witnessed many a scene in its entirety which those who performed it were only conscious of in a fragmentary manner the news of the little town was brought to her through many various channels her infirmity seemed to set her in a place apart and many a one was willing to play the part of chorus for her behoof and interpret the drama after his or her own fashion minnie's maid jane gibbs mrs errington and mr diamond had all given her the news about mr powell and all in different keys and with such variations of details as universally attend the contemporaneous viva voce transmissions jane gibbs had a strong feeling of respect and gratitude towards the preacher for his having converted her brother and being herself a member of the church of england she looked upon his secession from the main body of the methodists with great leniency she dared to say that mr powell would do as much good in lady lane as he had done in the wesleyan chapel and seeing that whether you call them wesleyans or ranters or baptists or quakers or calvinists they were all dissenters it could not so much matter whether they disagreed among each other or not Mrs. Errington, without entering into that question, considered herself peculiarly aggrieved by the circumstance that Powell had come to lodge in the same house with her. "'I am doomed, it seems, to be a victim to that man,' she said to Minnie Bodkin. "'At Maxfield's house I was frequently disturbed by his hymns and his preachments, and even now it appears I am not to escape from him. He absorbs Mrs. Thimbleby's attention to a ludicrous extent. If you will credit the fact, my dear Minnie, only yesterday morning my egg was sent up at breakfast greatly overboiled and when i remonstrated with mrs thimbleby on this piece of negligence what excuse do you suppose she made she answered that she was very sorry but she had been getting ready a little snack that was her expression for mr powell after his early preaching and it had slipped her memory that my breakfast egg was still in the saucepan i have no doubt the man stuffs and crams himself at her cost all these dissenting preachers do my dear whereunto minnie answered gravely that it was a great comfort to church people to reflect that moderation in eating and drinking was entirely confined to the orthodox clergy mr diamond again took a different and more sympathizing view of the poor preacher but even he was very far from entertaining the same exalted admiration for powell's character as was felt by minnie matthew diamond had an englishman's ingrained antipathy for the uncontrolled display of feeling from which powell's welsh blood by no means revolted diamond could never divest himself of a lurking notion that no man would publicly exhibit deep emotion if he could help it and consequently he looked on all such exhibitions as rather pitiable manifestations of infirmity or else as mere claptrap and play-acting of the latter it was impossible to suspect powell diamond had the touchstone of truthfulness within himself and it sufficed to convince him that the preacher however wild and mistaken was sincere yes he said to miss bodkin there can be no doubt that the man's soul is as clear from guile as an infant's but it is a pity he cannot suppress the outburst of enthusiasm which exhaust him so much he does not wish to suppress them answered minnie he looks on them as a means specially vouchsafed to him for moving others and to use his own words saving souls some sober sensible persons remind me when they speak of david powell of a covey of barn-door fowls complacently staring up at a lock and exclaiming poor creature how unpleasant it must be for it to have to soar and gyrate in that giddy fashion and to make that shrill noise all the time too how it must envy us our constitutions i suppose i am one of the barn-door fowls miss bodkin well perhaps 
or rather you have lived among them until it seems to you that higher flying creatures have something a little ridiculous about them and you forcibly restrain any upward tendency of wing at least in the presence of your mates of the barn door i am flattered to be credited with some upward tendencies at any rate but miss bodkin to drop metaphor in which i cannot attempt to compete with you i must be allowed to maintain that powell's outbursts of excitement are neither good for himself nor others they are morbid and not the healthy expression of a healthy nature like the lark singing and soaring you have seen powell since his return how does he seem to be in health in bodily health not perhaps so much amiss although he is greatly emaciated and startlingly pale but his mind is in a strange state. He was always enthusiastic. He is enthusiastic for others, but as regards himself, his mind is a prey to overwhelming gloom. I see a great change for the worse in him in that respect. Minnie felt a strong desire to see the preacher again. She compassionated him from her heart, and thought she might be able to administer some comfort to him as regarded Rhoda Maxfield. There were days when Minnie was able to walk from one room to another with the assistance of a crutched stick, and it occurred to her that if Mrs. Thimbleby would allow her house to be made a place of meeting, she might see and speak with Powell there more privately, and with less danger of exciting gossiping remark than elsewhere. Minnie had once or twice laterally driven to the widow Thimbleby's house to see Mrs. Errington, or leave a message for her, although she had never mounted to her sitting-room for the ladder-like staircase which was an imaginary difficulty in the way of castalia's visits to her mother-in-law was a very real obstacle to minnie bodkin the project of seeing powell in this way took possession of her mind she sent a note to mrs thimbleby by her maid jane asking at what hour mr powell was most likely to be in the house and saying that she should like to come there and say a few words to him about a person in whose welfare he was interested the widow saw nothing very singular in this she knew that powell had been to see miss bodkin before he left whitford and it was quite in accordance with the known characters of the methodist preacher and the rector's daughter that they should meet and combine on the common ground of charity for sure mr powell have recommended some poor afflicted person to the young lady and she have assisted him whosoever they may be thought mrs thimbleby and she begs me not to mention her coming to anybody for sure and certain she's not one of them as boasts of their good deeds no no like our blessed mr powell she don't let her left hand know what her right hand doeth i wonder if she's under conviction such a good charitable lady it seems as if she must belong to the elect but there all our good works are filthy rags i suppose the best on us but i can't help thinking as miss bodkin's works must be more pleasing to the lord than brother jackson's as lives among the wesleyans on the fat of the land and don't do much in return except condemning all those folks as isn't wesleyans lord forgive me if i'm wrong mrs thimbleby returned a verbal message to miss bodkin as the latter had desired her to do mrs thimbleby's duty and the most likely time would be between four and five o'clock in the afternoon and she would be sure to obey miss bodkin's instructions and i'm ever so much obliged to her for excusing me writing my dear said the widow to jane for my hands is so stiff and rough with hard work as holding a pen seems to be a great difficulty i'd rather mop out my back yard any day than write the receipt for a lodger's rent and tis but a smudgy business when all's done on the following day dr bodkin's sober green carriage drawn by a stout sober-paced horse was seen standing at mrs thimbleby's door it was a few minutes after four o'clock in the afternoon the street was very quiet there was scarcely a passer-by to be seen from one end of it to the other when jane and the old maid-servant assisted miss bodkin to alight from the carriage and supported her into the clean flagged room on the ground floor which served mrs thimbleby for parlour kitchen and dining-hall all in one the coachman had orders to return and fetch his young mistress at six o'clock will you give me house-room so long mrs thimbleby asked minnie with a sweet smile which so captivated the good woman that she stood staring at her visitor in a kind of rapture unable to reply for a minute or two minnie was placed in mrs thimbleby's own high-backed chair with the clean patchwork-covered cushions piled behind her 
a horsehair footstool borrowed for the purpose from mr diamond's parlour was under her foot and she declared that she found herself as comfortable as in her own lounging-chair at home you see miss i couldn't say to the minute when mr powell would be back but between four and five he generally do come in and i make him swallow a cup of herb tea or something and i will not deny that i sometimes put a pinch of china tea in but he don't know tis but a poor place miss added the widow glancing round but so long as you can make yourself content to stay in it so long you will be welcome as the flowers in may if twas to be for a twelvemonth then minnie praised the brilliant cleanliness of the little kitchen took notice of the cat that rubbed its velvet head confidingly against her hand and asked mrs thimbleby how she prospered in her lodging letting the widow was loquacious in her mild slow way and she was pleased at this opportunity for a little harmless gossip it was a propensity which received frequent checks from those around her mr diamond was too taciturn too grave too much absorbed in his books to give any heed to his landlady's conversation beyond listening to the few particulars of his weekly expenses which she insisted on explaining to him mrs errington on the other hand was not at all taciturn but she desired to have the talk chiefly to herself she loved to harangue mrs thimbleby on a variety of subjects and to place in vivid colours before her the inadequacy of all her domestic arrangements to satisfy a lady of mrs errington's quality as to gossiping with david powell mrs thimbleby would as soon have thought of attempting to gossip with the sculptured figure of a saint which stood at a niche at one side of the portal of st chad's so the good woman finding miss bodkin more compliant and affable than the two first named of her lodgers and nearer to the level of common humanity than the last indulged herself with an outpouring of chat as the two sat waiting for powell's return minnie listened to her at first with but a drowsy kind of attention her own thoughts were wandering away from the present time and place and for a while the quiet of the room where the gathering twilight seemed to bring a deeper hush was only broken by the monotonous murmur of the widow's voice but by and by mrs thimbleby spoke words which effectually aroused minnie's attention there was she said a deal of talk in whitford about young mr errington he was such a very nice-spoken gentleman and most people seemed to like him so much but yet he had enemies in the town folk said he was extravagant and his wife gave herself such airs as there was no bearing with em she not paying ready money but almost expecting tradespeople to be satisfied with the honour of serving her poor lady she wasn't used to be pinched for money herself and knew no better most likely but many whitford shopkeepers grumbled as mr errington got goods on credit from them and yet sent orders to london with ready money for expensive articles and it didn't seem fair there was no use saying anything to old mrs errington about the matter because though she was no doubt a very good-hearted lady she was rather high and if you mentioned to her as mr gladwish the shoemaker said unpleasant things about her son's bill why she would tell you that her grandfather drove four horses to his coach and that mr algernon's wife's uncle was a great nobleman up in london as paid his butler a bigger salary than all gladwish could earn in a year and if such sayings got abroad they would not be soothing to the feelings of a respectable shoemaker would they now not to say that they wouldn't help to pay gladwish's bill nor yet the fly bill at the bluebell nor yet the bill for young madam at Ravel and sarsnitz nor yet the bill at the fishmongers and poulterers as she mrs thimbleby was credibly informed that ivy lodge consumed the best of everything and at a great rate in the beginning tradespeople believed all that was said about young mr and mrs errington's fine friends and fine prospects and seemed inclined to trust em to any amount but latterly there had grown up a feeling against em and if miss bodkin wouldn't think it a liberty in her to ask her not to mention it again seeing it was but a guess on her part she would go so far as to say that she believed an enemy was at work and that enemy old jonathan maxfield 
why or wherefore old max should be so set against young mr algernon as he had known him from a little child she could not say but there was rumours about that young errington owed old max money and old max was that near and fond of his pelf as nothing was so likely to make him mad against any one as losing money by him and old max was a harsh man and a bitter where he took a dislike only see how he had persecuted mr powell and though he let his daughter go to ivy lodge and they did say young mrs errington had taken quite a fancy to the girl yet that didn't prevent old max sneering and snarling and saying all manner of sharp words against the erringtons and old max was a man of substance and his words had weight in the town and you see miss said mrs thimbleby in conclusion young mr and mrs errington are gentlefolks and they don't hear what's said in whitford and they may think things are all right when they're all wrong of course i dare say they have great friends and great prospects miss and very likely they could settle everything to-morrow if they thought fit only the tale here is that not a tradesman in the place has seen the colour of their money and they deny themselves nothing and the lady's so high in her manners and altogether there is a feeling against em miss and as i know you're an old friend and a kind friend i am sure and not one as takes pleasure in the troubles of their neighbours i thought i would mention it to you in case you should like to say a word to the young lady and gentleman private like a word from you would have a deal of weight and i do assure you miss tis of no use trying to speak to old mrs errington for she'll only go on about her grandfather's coach and four and between you and me miss there is some as takes it amiss all this pained and surprised minnie she understood at once how castalia's ungracious manner was resented in the little town and set down a great deal of the hostility which the widow had described to the score of the honourable mrs algernon's personal unpopularity still there must be something seriously wrong at ivy lodge debt was a slough of despond into which such a one as algernon errington would easily put his foot from sheer thoughtlessness and the habit of refusing himself no gratification within his reach but he might not find it so easy to extricate himself a word of warning might possibly do good at least it could do no harm beyond drawing forth some languid impertinence from castalia and minnie would not for an instant weigh that chance against the hope of doing some good to her old friend algy besides in truth she had as has been said an undefined feeling of compassion for castalia herself which rendered her singularly forbearing towards the latter's manifestations of fretful jealousy or haughty dislike in the first days of his return to whitford algernon had many a time shot one of his quick questioning glances at minnie when his wife uttered some coolly insolent speech directed at rather than to the rector's daughter but instead of the keen sarcasm or scornful irony which he had expected minnie had nine times out of ten replied with a quiet matter-of-fact observation calculated to extinguish anything like a war of words at first algernon had attributed such forbearance on the part of the brilliant high-spirited minnie entirely to her strong regard for himself but this flattering illusion did not last long he soon perceived that minnie regarded his wife with pity and that she refrained from using the keen weapons of her wit against castalia much as a nurse might refrain from scolding or arguing with a sick child now this discovery was not pleasant to algernon if any sympathy were to be expended on the inmates of ivy lodge he was persuaded that much the larger share of it ought to be given to himself if there were troubles if there were mortifications if there was disappointment who suffered from them as he did and by whom were they so unmerited he was not far sometimes from resenting any show of compassion for castalia as a direct injury to himself after having sacrificed himself by making a marriage so inadequate to his deserts it was a little too much to hear his wife pitied for the contrast between her past and present position 
and yet by a queer strain of inconsistency running through the warp and woof of his character he would often boast of castalia's aristocratic antecedents and ask with a smile and a shrug how the deuce his wife could be expected to stand the petty privations and discomforts of whitford after having lived all her life in a sphere as remote from such things as the planet saturn from the earth minnie partly saw partly guessed these movements of algernon's mind but she judged him with leniency and put a kind interpretation on his words and ways whenever such an interpretation was possible at all events if a word in season could be useful to him she would not refrain from speaking that word this young woman had latterly passed into regions of thought and feeling from which much of her old life with its old pains and pleasures and aims seemed shrunken to insignificance one solid good she was able to grasp and to enjoy the satisfaction of serving her fellow-creatures all else grew poor and paltry as the years rolled by not that minnie had attained to any saint-like heights of self-abnegation not that she did not still desire and admire many sublunary things but she had got a hurt that had stricken down her pride she bore an ache in her heart for which self-culture and all the activities and aspirations of her bright intellect afforded no balm but she did not grow sour and selfish in her grief the example of the poor unlettered methodist preacher whom in former days she would have thought the unlikeliest of human beings to teach her any profitable lesson had roused the noblest part of her nature to emulation david powell had started from a lofty theory to a life of beautiful deeds minnie bodkin vaguely groping after a theory had seized on practical benevolence as a means to climb to some higher ideal in morals as in thought the deductive and inductive states like the ladders of jacob's dream reaching from heaven to earth from earth to heaven and the angels of the lord descend and ascend them continually minnie was roused from a reverie by the entrance of the preacher's tall figure into the kitchen where the fire was now beginning to throw ruddy lights and fantastic shadows on to the whitewashed walls don't be startled mr powell she said in her clear sweet tones it is i minnie bodkin i thought i should like to see you and to say a few words to you quietly powell advanced and took her outstretched hands reverently in his hand the blessing of our father in heaven be on you lady he said your kind face is very welcome to me End of chapter fourteen